This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and on the show today, we'll find out if California's drought is over. The wet season is over, and the Sierra Nevadas have a lot more water up there stored as snow than they did this time last year. Reservoirs in Northern California are also looking a lot better. Folsom Lake rose a whopping 10 feet in the rainy month of March. But the picture around the state is not so rosy, and over the next hour, we'll discuss what lies ahead for our gardens and showers in the Golden State. We will also look at water that Californians and most Americans eat every week. Water tucked into fruits, nuts, dairies, and vegetables produced here in California. This program is generously underwritten by the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. And joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club today, we have four water experts. Gabrielle Ludwig is Director of Sustainability and Environmental Affairs at the Almond Board of California. Buzz Thompson is director of the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University. And Ashley Boren is executive director of Sustainable Conservation, an environmental group that works with farmers and other businesses. And Max Gomberg is the climate and conservation manager at the State Water Resources Control Board. Please welcome them to Climate One. <laughs> welcome to you all. Buzz Thompson, is the drought over? Paint the big picture for us statewide in California. So the drought is clearly not over yet. We've had a reasonable uh, year this year, but at best it's an average year for the state as a whole. Uh, Much better in Northern California than in Southern California, which has continued uh, to experience a drought. And right before coming here today, I looked at NOAA's most recent predictions as to what is likely to happen uh, over the course of the summer and the fall. And the best projections are that we are moving into a neutral period, uh, sort of in between the El Nino and the La Nina uh, effect, and that we will actually probably by the fall, there's about a 50% probability that we will see La Nina uh, again. And so we are not uh, even close to being out of the danger that we've seen over the past uh, four years. And, of course, the other uh, problem is, is that the drought that we've seen so far was not just an ordinary drought. It was one of the worst droughts that we have uh, uh, seen, just in terms of the total deficit of precipitation. It is the worst drought in a millennium uh, and, or in a century. And if you include the heat that was involved, then it could be the worst that we've seen in a millennium. Ashley Bourne, you work with lots of different agricultural interests. How is this registering with the ag industry? Are they uh, issuing a sigh of relief after a wet year, saying, okay, we know? No, (laughs) Uh, definitely not. You know, and again, it also varies across the state. So in, you know, the northern part of the valley, it's not nearly as severe as it is in the southern part of San Joaquin Valley, where there's a lot of farmers that still aren't getting allocations of water or Um, It it varies even within the San Joaquin Valley, depending on where you are. And the coastal areas, again, in the southern part of the state are having 
you know, still having serious water shortages. So it's a so. very, very local issue. Let's talk about almonds. Gabrielle Ludwig, um, almonds often villainized. We did a, a post on Facebook, little horns on almonds. Got lots of, uh, <laughs> uh, got lots of traction on that one. I think you put some ads on the radio to, to counter that sort of stuff. You know, how are the almonds faring now at this point in the water season? Well, I I very much second what Ashley said, that it really depends on where you are because it depends on your water rights. It depends on, you know, things like that. So and where you are in the water distribution system. So some growers are getting 100% of their allocation and other growers just heard three days ago they're getting 5% of their allocation, which is not covering their needs. So, um, and then also I think to coming back to your larger question, I very much agree. We don't think that the drought is over and whether it's, the weather drought or regulatory caused reasons for drought, but just water supply is going to be changing for a variety of reasons so, for the hold, future. Hold so on. coming regulators can cause drought? From our perspective, yes. So they're they're not letting turning the tap wide enough and they're holding it back to, to what, protect fish? It can be for fish, it can be for temperature, it can be for salt. I mean there's a whole variety of reasons for um, water not being available, or currently there's water that would could be traditionally would have been pumped into storage for use during the summer, and because of fish, it can't be pumped. Max Gumber, did you cause this crisis? <laughs> I didn't say cause the crisis. I'm a component to it. No, uh, <laughs> but as Gabrielle mentions, there are reasons why water isn't being delivered, but that's California water. It's complex. We have to protect our ecosystems. We have to protect our urban areas and make sure that we have supplies for cities, and we have to make sure that we still have a thriving agricultural economy. It's a very difficult balancing act. In fact, California, I think, has uh, in law that there had equal measure, equal rights for ecosystems and human uses. So, Gabrielle Ludwig, do you think that that's reasonable and fair, or do you think it's, it's tilted in favor of human, in, yeah, tilted in one direction or the other? I don't think it's that simple, because we're all dependent on all of it. We all need the water, whether we eat the food. We're all dependent on the ecosystems. You know, so, so I, again, I think that's that antagonism as it's been built up is to me part of the problem because it's been really hard to have good conversations about how do we go from where we are now to the future if we view it as here are the environmental rights, here are the ag rights, here are the urban rights. We're all in this together and we are all codependent. So how do we move forward from where the conversation's been to a more productive conversation that's not an either or? Do you think that almonds have been unfairly villainized? Of course I do. <laughs> but I would also say that it, it, it's part of the larger conversation that many people do not understand where their food comes from, what it takes to grow food, that I don't care what you eat, there is water, very, a lot of water in that food. Um, almonds took the hit because we're now one of the largest crops in the country. When I was in grad school, it's getting some time ago, there was a drought. At that time, there was about a million acres of cotton. Cotton was villainized. So it really comes back to you know, who, which crops are grown. And if you actually look at the data, the absolute amount of water going to agriculture hasn't changed that much over the last 20 years. What's changed is which crop. And it, then there are also such statistics as the productivity, the amount of crop we grow with that water has really increased. So on average, there's about a 43% increase in productivity for all of California agriculture over the last 40 years. So that's more crop per drop. In the almond industry, we have a 33% increase just in the last 20 years. And that's partly changes in irrigation, partly changes in production practices. 
So again, everything's evolving. Um, we took the brunt of it, but really it was, again, part of that larger conversation about how do we deal with a limited water supply with so many different needs. And so it's easier to vilify than to have the hard conversation about how do we move forward. Buzz Thompson, I'd like to get your response to that, that ag has made efficiency improvements and that, uh, uh, yeah, your response. Yeah, so several things. First of all, I think it is a time-honored tradition in the water field to vilify everybody else. So if you're in Northern California, it's always the fault of those Southern Californians that are stealing our water. Uh, if you are an urban area generally, uh, then it's frequently the fault of the farmers. Uh, if you are a farmer, it's the fault of those environmentalists who are uh, taking all the water that should be going to, uh, to the farms. Uh, you know, when the legislature last considered the, the delta on a comprehensive basis, as you pointed out, Greg, they decided that we had co-equal goals, that we really should not try to prioritize one goal uh, over another, and that actually, as Gabrielle has already mentioned, uh, we really should be thinking about how can we meet all of the various needs in the, uh, uh, in the state. One of the things that we have learned from this particular uh, drought is actually the fish are not doing uh, particularly well, uh, despite our efforts uh, for them. And part of that is that uh, we do short them uh, whenever we can. And what happens is, is that we sort of push things so far that they end up being put on the endangered or threatened species list. At that point, a variety of regulations uh, click into uh, place, which makes our life harder for people like uh, Gabrielle, uh, who need to be growing the, uh, uh, the food. And so one of the things that I think we do need to do is to take a step back and think more comprehensively about how can we ensure uh, that the environment is protected um, on a continual uh, basis and that we are doing everything we can to avoid having species listed. Ashley Bourne, why does the environment matter? If, if, you, don't, if you don't eat fish, why do fish matter? What, what's, that, what's really being protected there? Is it just food supply? If, it's, if I live in a city and I don't go to the Sierras, why do I care if uh, some stream is preserved? Well, people do eat fish, so there's, <laughs> there's certainly that aspect of it, but there are also, I think, important indicator species for some of our rivers and streams and ecosystems and floodplains. And so if your fish aren't doing well, it's usually a sign that other parts of the ecosystem aren't doing well as also. And in addition, there's lots of species that are dependent on those fish. So if you take that fish out of the system, you have a cascading effect on, on other species. So it's, the fish are important in and of themselves and valuable species in and of themselves and for you know, all the recreation and food they provide. But it's also their, the interconnected web of species that are dependent on them as well. Uh, Buzz Thompson, uh, Senator Feinstein has a bill, uh, introduced some legislation in, in Congress to kind of get the federal government in here with some money, maybe some cement. Uh, what's she trying to do? What's the vision there for what she wants to do to, to address the, the water stress and, and shortage in California? Yeah, so I think uh, Senator Feinstein is really trying to uh, do almost the impossible in the California water space, uh, which is to... Uh, please as many people as possible and in the process try and get legislation actually uh, passed through Congress. So she is focused uh, not only on trying to increase the amount of water which is available to farms and urban areas in the short run, 
but also to provide the resources that are necessary uh, to uh, expand uh, the state's ability uh, to meet drought conditions uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the long run. And it's going to be very difficult uh, in order to get any bill passed through Congress to address California's drought unless you address some of those uh, short-term issues. She's doing it in a more considerate fashion uh, than the House of Representatives uh, would. She's not proposing just a wholesale exemption uh, from the Endangered Species Act, but instead trying to push back against the Endangered Species Act uh, as, as far as you well, uh, can while leaving it in place. Uh, but uh, I still question whether or not uh, it's going to leave the uh, environment with the protections that are necessary, and I still have a question as to whether or not it's actually going to pass the Senate. Gabrielle Ludwig, do you welcome federal involvement, more money, the legislation, the federal government to come in here and help out agriculture? And they're already a big part of, of the water delivery system in the state already. Do you welcome more federal involvement? Um, I have to admit, I don't know enough about that to give you a really good answer. But fundamentally, I think, as I was saying, the more we can bring people to the table to have the hard conversations, and someone like a Senator Feinstein is one of the few people who could actually potentially make that happen, I think it's going to be beneficial. And as you know, Ashley can talk about, if you look at any of these issues, you always are going to hit regulatory stumbling blocks. And again, that's something where you know, someone in Congress can help figure out how do we make progress in that area to find, get to the better place. So I think there's potential, but I, I'll also be upfront, I'm not the expert on the Ashley Boren, should the Endangered Species Act be loosened uh, to as a res- partial response to the drought? That's a very tough question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think uh, the Endangered Species Act has played a really important role uh, in helping us protect uh, the environment for species. I think um, it, I think there is probably room to tweak it and to improve it um, and to have, have it have a, an ecosystem focus and not just on single individual species, but the importance of the ecosystem as a whole and, um, and the services, the many services that our ecosystems provide for us. So definitely um, maybe some tweaks, but it's certainly a very important law that, that we, needs to stay. Max Gomber, what's the State Water Board's position on whether the... Endangered Species Act is in the way or it should be protected entirely as it is? The state's position is you don't go undoing federal legislation that's been (laughs) around for decades and is is important to preserving our environmental values. I mean, part of the answer to the question about why are the fish important is because California's economy is heavily based on tourism, right, and our natural environment that we all enjoy, um, people who live here and people who come visit. And we lost 22 million trees over the past few years. Um, we're not going to have the same natural environment unless we protect it, as well as, again, balancing our urban needs and our agricultural needs. Max Gumberg, a, a year ago, Governor Brown stood in a brown field that usually was st- uh, covered with snow, announced some historic water restrictions in California, 25% about a year ago. Uh, how do we do? We did very well. We hit almost 24%, 23.9 to be exact. And that really shows tremendous, 
tremendous resilience by the people of California because you're talking about over 38 million people all doing their part, whether it was taking a shorter shower, turning off the irrigation, whether it was businesses making changes um, to make their water use more efficient from beer production to data centers in Silicon Valley. Um, all of it really showed uh, a tremendous response to this drought. And when you think about, you know, 25% was a really ambitious goal that the governor set. That's one out of every four drops of water that was being used no longer being used over a span of nine months. So California's did a tremendous job. And going forward, is that going to be enough? Will those, be, will those uh, restrictions be loosened? Will they continue? They've already been loosened a bit. They were loosened a bit in February due to the good start to the winter. Uh, as Buzz said, we're improved we're not out of the drought, but conditions have improved. So we're looking at that. The board is likely to act in May to set new rules for the summer. And do farmers get some credit for that achievement as well? You mentioned kind of showers, et cetera, but most of the water use in the state is in ag. Did farmers, you know, do they share in that success? They do. It's more complicated uh, than it is in the urban sector for agriculture because you've got surface water that's governed by a complex water rights system. Then you've got groundwater. We did pass a, a landmark groundwater law back in 2014, which is really going to help to manage the different basins, some of which have been severely overdrawn in this drought. So we're making progress. Some farmers have had to do more than others because of where they fit in the hierarchy. Gabriel Ludwig, how was that 25%? Does that pain? What did that impact on the farmers that you know, whether almonds or otherwise? Well, as, as we just said, I mean, for farmers, it was a completely different process. So a, a number of farmers had already 100% cuts, at least on the surface water. So I, as, as Max was just explaining, already two years running before the governor put in the 25% cut for all humans. So again, it's a as Max was saying, a much more complex process. So you had some growers with zero water allocation, other growers still with their full allocations. Now, the system allows water trading to a point. If you can move the water and where growers could, they use groundwater, no doubt about it. So coming back to the groundwater supply got tapped very heavily because of the drought. Um, so you really saw a wide range of experiences. Um, so in terms of how much water got cut and where it was. I, well, the way I put it is growers muddled through. So they, you know, they bought water, they used groundwater, they didn't grow annual crops, they um, you know, planted, you know, young trees don't need as many, much water as older trees. So there's a whole bunch of ways that they tried to figure out how can I keep my business running with having less water. And, if you're just joining us, we're talking about the state water situation at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. That was Gabrielle Ludwig with the uh, State Almond Board. Also with us today is Buzz Thompson from the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford, Ashley Boren from Sustainable Conservation, and Max Gomberg from the State Water Resources Control Board. Uh, Buzz Thompson, we just heard about drilling into groundwater. Uh, people were drilling deeper and deeper and taking out water that had been put there for you know, a thousand years ago. So tell us about the groundwater situation and how we're kind of drawing from that savings account that water people always talk about. Yeah. So actually, California law has long provided that we're supposed to manage our groundwater aquifers on a sustainable basis. Uh, but the problem is, is that the only entities that really could enforce that were the courts, and so it never got enforced. And as a result, we've been overdrafting some of our most important groundwater aquifers in the state now for years. 
And that's a real problem when we get to a drought, because in a drought, if you're cut off from your surface water supplies, then that groundwater is that savings account that you can draw from. In 2014, the state for the first time adopted a comprehensive groundwater management act, which is now going to require all local uh, jurisdictions to adopt sustainable groundwater management plans. I never thought I would actually see the day when California adopted a law like that. It's an exceptionally well-drafted and good law. Uh, but having said that, it still could allow us for uh, years, in fact for decades, to continue to draw down on our groundwater. And I think one of the steps we really need to take is to set some really ambitious interim uh, goals uh, to ensure that we protect that groundwater, which is so essential. Gabriel Ludwig? I see, one thing I wanted to add to that conversation is, at least in the Central Valley, my understanding is that recharge is possible. So we've already had this in the past, where part of the reason for the California aqueduct system and bringing water to the west side was to deal with overdraft of groundwater. And so when that water supply became available to growers, they started using that for irrigation, and actually groundwater recovered. So we have examples showing that groundwater recovery is possible with management and, and available water. So I just want to say that, that we have potential here and that this will tie into how these, this, this, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act gets implemented is trying to figure out routes to help not only protect the water that's there, but to recharge the water that is there. So take water from the delta to recharge groundwater that's taken out in the central, from the ground in the Central Valley? No. Take water from floods, like when you have a lot of water, and use that for groundwater recharge. But that, Thompson? Yeah, so, uh, so two or three things. The first is, is that I agree with Gabrielle entirely, uh, that to the degree that we can uh, soften the reduction in groundwater, which is going to take place under the 2014 Act, uh, we should do so. Uh, at the same time, I guess I would take the story of the Central Valley Project and draw a different moral from it, which is, is that we were overdrafting our groundwater, and so as a result, we brought in a brand new source of water, which was the Central Valley Project. And the response to that was to think, now we have all of this water from the Central Valley Project. We actually can expand our agricultural operations. And so then we end up in a situation where we're using all the Central Valley Project water, dependent on that, and we're now back to overdrafting our groundwater again. And we do have a tendency, I think, in California, we have a tendency everywhere in the world to believe that the problem of uh, water shortages is simply to pour more water on the problem. Uh, and ultimately, that's not sustainable. At some point, we can't continue uh, to do that. Uh, and so I think we also need to be thinking in the state about in a state which is inherently uh, dry and where we know droughts are going to get worse and worse in the future, what is the limit to our water use? And at what point do we need to say we have to learn to live with the water which is sustainably drawn? Max Gomberg, the, the entire water system in the West was set up during an unusually historically wet period. There's more water on paper than there is in reality. Are we facing an inevitable sort of shrinkage or belt tightening here? We're already seeing it. Uh, you know, this is one of those 
areas where we look at what's happening with climate change, our temperatures are getting warmer, our snowpack is receding, the Colorado River is in long-term drought. That's water for eight different states in the West, and the water doesn't even get to Mexico. I, that, that's a serious problem that's long-term and, and needs to be addressed, in part, as Buzz mentions, not just through finding more water from elsewhere, but really being more efficient and reducing some of our uses. That's true for the Sierra Nevadas as well. We're losing that snowpack. It's only going to be snow at higher elevations as temperatures warm. We're also, as uh, some of Buzz's colleagues at Stanford just came out with a paper showing that the evidence is already in that we're going to more extremes. When we do have warm and dry periods, they're going to be even more warm and dry than they were in the past. So we're going to have longer and more severe droughts. Um, These are really pressing challenges, plus we have population growth to deal with. I want to make a a, a point on on the discussion about the groundwater law. Um, I agree with Buzz. It's a good law. It could have been a better law. Um, And the way it could have been better is it could have required action more quickly. Um, In in some cases, it goes out till 2040 until some areas of the state are actually required to manage their groundwater in a more sustainable way. So we've got some tune-ups to do. Ashley Boren, uh, we're talking about a new normal here. A lot of people, individuals, certainly perhaps farmers, if they've farmed the land perhaps for generations, they want it to be the way it has been. They, want, they think the water that they've always had, that they're continuing to be entitled to. What we're hearing from Max Gomberg and scientists is there's a new normal that there's water volatility, water stress. Is that sinking in with farmers that you're working with? Uh, I think it definitely is. Again, it varies across the state, Um, certainly in the San Joaquin Valley, where I think we're seeing the most severe groundwater overdraft and where the shortages are the greatest. It's definitely got folks' attention. And I I think one example would be this Groundwater Management Act that was referred to. Um, When that went to vote in the legislature, not one San Joaquin Valley legislator voted for that Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. But everyone is now really rolling up their sleeves now that it has passed to try to figure out how to make it work. And, and you know, it's true. I think we would all love to see it go into effect more quickly, um, myself included. But I think it's also a huge change um, to manage groundwater. They've got to form groundwater sustainability agencies that align with the groundwater basins. There's a lot of data and information they need to get. It's just a whole other way. So and Paso Robles just said, we're not doing that, thank you very much. And, and what's, what, what's the consequence? Well, if they, if they don't come up with the Groundwater Sustainability Agency and or they don't develop the plan and or they don't uh, meet the objectives they set out to do, the state board has the authority to step in. And that's, in a sense, the stick Uh, to encourage these areas to come up with it on their own because the state does really vary greatly. So it makes a lot of sense for a common resource like this for the stakeholders to come together to figure out how to best manage it. Max goes down there with a big wrench. Okay. Um, But first, I want to ask about... uh, We'll get to uh, Gabrielle. Sure. Just So I think to add to this whole conversation, because I don't think it's just a question of finding new water in the way you're describing it. To me, it's about diversifying the water supply. So certainly for the Central Valley, part of the issue is that we've relied on surface water, which meant relying on snowpack storage and the gradual runoff dams, or groundwater. We don't really have much in between. And so the way I view it, and I think certainly from the Almond Board, something that we've been looking at where we've stepped back and said, okay, how do we use, we fund research, we fund, you know, that's part of what we grow our monies for is, where do we go from here? What are the issues? And so what, I, what we're looking at is 
Can we improve the irrigation? Can, you know, just with what we currently know, can we bring new technology to bear on the irrigation to make it even more efficient than it currently is? But the bigger picture is really how do we invest into, you know, recycling, groundwater recharge, use of water. And so we have examples where we can see right now you know, efforts to take water from the cities that has not already been allocated and say, can we use that tertiary clean water and get it to where it can be used for irrigation? Um, we have efforts where we're working with Sustainable Conservation and UC Davis to see if groundwater recharge is an option. Can, since most of the land is ag land, can that ag land be used? We know in certain situations it can. For almonds, we're not sure if the trees are going to be happy with it. I mean, there's basic agronomic questions that need to be answered in addition to the water side of it. Um, where are we on, uh, you know, using solar for some kind of desalinization for things like that? So can we, again, it's not one big project, but can we find ways to diversify and figure out how to adapt to all these changes, whether it's, there are regulatory changes, I'm sorry, there are regulatory changes, whether it's sigma or other things that are affecting the water supply, and there's climate change one. So that's really the conversation we need to be having. To me, you know, Sigma is just a, a Sigma is Sustainable Groundwater Management Act to translate an acronym. Acronym is how do we how do we go from where we are to that next step? And I think yes, there's going to be limits, but I also think there's a lot of potential that we haven't tapped into. Ashley Boren, tell us about Don Cameron, who's a farmer that has something that may be a solution for, for doing what we're talking about. Yeah, can I just say one quick thing on, to add on to Gabrielle's point? Is, uh, it, it's about diversifying, but it's also really thinking about the system in a much more integrated way. You know, we tend to think about surface water, we think about groundwater as separate sources, and they're obviously very connected. How we operate our dams for both of those, um, there's a lot that could be gained from... Um, thinking through how to think about the system in a more integrated way, including land use and forest management and other things that could really help uh, build more resiliency and stability in our, our water supply. So Don Cameron's a wonderful story. Um, Don Cameron is a very innovative farmer in Fresno County who is entirely uh, reliant on groundwater, and he is in an area of very severe groundwater overdraft, but he you know, had regularly, had, there are flood events, and he would, you know, trying to keep the water from his land and finally said, you know, why don't I just let this water come on my land and, you know, and recharge the groundwater? So in 2011, which was our last high water year, he um, let the Kings River flow over onto his uh, pistachio and his grape acreage, about 3,000 acres. Um, It was, you know, 18 inches high for weeks at a time. So, you know, not just flood irrigating, but kind of uber flood irrigating. Um, and he was able to recharge a tremendous amount of groundwater, and he had no impact on his crop yields. And um, so you should know, though, that this is quite unusual because all of his neighbors would look at him and just say, this, you know, this guy is insane. You know, he's going to kill his crops. And so we have Sustainable Conservation has been partnering with him and grower associations like the Almond Board that there's a lot of potential for that concept because there's a lot of land in the Central Valley, that is permeable, you know, that you could recharge water and there are crops that we think could potentially handle it. So it's not going to solve the problem. You know, we definitely need to reduce pumping to get our groundwater to sustainable levels, but it could be a really important piece of the puzzle. Some of our studies show that in some basins it could make up to 
one-third of the average annual overdraft uh, with existing infrastructure. So it's, it's significant. Ashley Boren is with a Sustainable Conservation and Environmental Group in San Francisco. We're talking about the drought at Climate One. We're going to go to our lightning round. This is where we ask uh, each speaker to uh, respond to a, a brief question, yes or no question. Ashley Boren, what crop is the biggest water hog in California? <laughs> I think it's on a pure volume basis. Uh, I think it's alfalfa. Buzz Thompson, in the last five years, Orange County has made more progress than San Francisco in using water more efficiently. Yes or no? It has done a much better job of being able to recycle all the water that it's utilizing and then putting it down into an aquifer where it can reutilize it. So I would say yes. We're not very good at one point. (laughs) (laughs) Even though San Francisco is doing well, it's not doing as well as Orange County. Professors and politicians, I tell you. (laughs) Uh, uh, Max Gomberg, if you were writing a movie about water shenanigans in California... Would the villain come from the agricultural industry or the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California? <laughs> there are many villains, but there are many more heroes uh, in California who are working hard to do the right thing and conserve water and diversify supplies. All right, we'll look for Chinatown, too. Okay. Um, Gabrielle Ludwig, citizens should be wary of municipal water systems being operated by for-profit companies. Yes or no? My gut reaction is yes. That's purely a gut reaction. Good. We like guts. Um, (laughs) Max Gomberg, fracking for natural gas may have serious impacts on water quality and human health. In some places, yes. Buzz Thompson, gray water is hyped and may even be harmful to urban water systems. No, I think that's wrong. I think gray water can be very valuable, although there are much more effective ways of saving water, such as you know, broader recycling. I think David Sedlak, water expert at Cal, would say too much gray water uh, diversion takes water out of sewage systems. There needs to be a certain amount of water going through pipes and sewage systems. If we're too successful, the sewer gets clogged. I guess that's a high-class problem. Um, <laughs> I'm, not, uh, I'm not worried we're ever going to get to that particular stage. <laughs> Ashley Boren, senior water rights in California probably will be changed if the current drought continues. I think that's probably unlikely. I think that would uh, take require a lot of battles in the court, but I think there probably are ways to tweak the system so that we could improve uh, how water gets allocated. Gabrielle Ludwig, do you think that senior w- water rights will be changed in California if, this, if the drought continues, as they were done in Australia? It will be discussed, yes. Max Gomberg, San Diego made a smart move investing nearly $1 billion in a desalination plant. I'm not sure about that. If you look at the Australian experience, they went through a drought that lasted over a decade. They invested in multiple desalination plants, and many of those plants are not running now. And those are big, multi-million, in some cases, billion-dollar investments. And the water from that plant will be twice the cost of other water Uh, in the area. Last question. Buzz Thompson, in your lifetime, you will drink recycled water as a part of your daily normal life. Mm, Boy, that's, I've already, I thought you were going to ask me whether I've drunk recycled water, and I've done that. Uh, (laughs) But 
Um, well, <laughs> yes, the answer is uh, I've actually done it my entire life because actually all water is recycled uh, to, well, okay. uh, to some, <laughs> okay, uh, some right. degree. But that's a very important point because when we you know, are concerned about drinking recycled water, what we really should be realizing is that frequently the water that we get out of rivers and streams is actually been used more frequently and is dirtier than the water that's been formally recycled. There's beer now being made out of recycled yeah. water. That you can ah, that ends our lightning round. How do you think they did? I think they did pretty well. Let's give them a <laughs> thanks for that. And now here's a Climate One Minute. Last summer, following the hottest year on record, nearly 40% of Californians surveyed named the drought as their biggest concern. Ellen Hannock of the Public Policy Institute says that level of awareness was previously unheard of. She sees it as a wake-up call, a chance for Californians to turn the tide. But to do that, she says, we've got to come together, not take sides. The dialogue of division doesn't really help us. What we need to do is figure out how do we have all of this? How do we figure out how to work together? Because people in California need it all. They need food. I think we need to look at food security as as important as climate change, population growth. And then because I interrupted myself, I didn't get to food security. We should have folks in Irvine, California, really valuing what we have in California as this incredible bounty that we can produce for ourselves and for the world. It's It's a great resource. And instead, it gets dismissed and figuring out how to shepherd that and help those farmers that are now farming by iPad if they can afford it and being very thoughtful about it and figuring out how to do uh, win-wins with the ecosystem and have everybody feel heard versus everybody going to their barricades is how we come together as Californians, which is something we can do. We are in this together. We voted for it together, and it was a totally all of the above, something to do all these things we need to do versus picking one and dismissing the rest. We won't conserve our way out of it. We won't store our way out of it. We've got to do all of it. That's Ellen Hannock, Senior Fellow and Center Director at the Public Policy Institute of California. She came to Climate One in June of 2015. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. We're talking about the drought here at Climate One with Gabrielle Ludwig from the Almond Board of California, Buzz Thompson from Stanford, Ashley Bourne from Sustainable Conservation, and Max Gomberg from the State Water Resources Control Board. Uh, let's talk about dams. Uh, they're a big part of the issue. Gabrielle Ludwig, do you think that we need more concrete, raise some dams, more storage to capture water uh, and, and for times that it's needed? Short answer is yes, which I know is a loaded question, but Again, I consider that as part of this whole conversation about how do we deal with a changing way of water supply. So if we're getting more rainfall in the winter and less snowpack, is increasing dams, especially the ones that we have already, part of the conversation we need to have? Um, I don't think that's the only solution. So definitely, raise Shasta Dam. Would, could be an option. So I think we need, to be, we need to keep an open mind that that is something we need to think about, especially given the changing landscape because of climate change, but I would not say that's the only solution. Max Gomberg, more dams in California. There's a trend in some places to tear down dams in Washington, and perhaps I don't know what the governor's going to announce soon here with the Klamath, but uh, uh, more dams in California, Max Gomberg? Those Klamath dams are coming down, by the way. So that, that we see as a really positive step. And, and they're not the only ones that have come down. We had one in Carmel Valley that just came down. Um, we have over 1,400 major dams in California. We've dammed every river at least once, except one, um, some multiple times. More dams overall is not the answer. 
Um, we do need to be able to take, when we do have wet years and a lot of flow, um, we need to be able to store that water as much as possible. Um, and we do have distributed reservoirs around the state to do that. We also need to get more of it in the ground, as, as Ashley was saying. I think that's really a key, key focus. Um, but more dams is not going to solve our, our fundamental problems with water supply in the state. Buzz Thompson, can we build our way out of this? More, more, we heard this in the presidential debate. I think Carly Fiorina mentioned this. More storage, more dams. Is that, it seems, like, seems logical. Yeah. I mean, storage is clearly part of the solution, but more dams is not necessarily part of it. You know, as Max has already pointed out, even if you build all of the new surface reservoirs that we've been talking about, it only adds a couple of percentage uh, to the available water supply that we have uh, right now. Uh, it would be very uh, costly, uh, and in the case of some of the dams, you have to worry about the environmental consequences. Um, on the other hand, we can, as Max and uh, Ashley have already pointed out, we can store the water underground. We have this vast amount of natural reservoir, uh, which is available uh, uh, to us. And in addition to that, we also have to use the dams that we already have uh, more smartly uh, than we are uh, right now. Uh, at the moment, we are frequently having to release water from dams uh, in order to be able to ensure that they have flood control space. Uh, and uh, given the additional climate and weather information that we have now, we could tweak that system in order to do a much better job of actually saving water uh, for use. Ashley, Ashley Bourne, you know, storing water underground sounds logical. It's just not very fun to ski on. You can't see it. I mean, <laughs> you can't sail your boat on it. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, for cost effectiveness, uh, you, it's it's hands down. It's much more cost effective to store water uh, in our in the ground. Some of these studies we've done on just using active farmland are really uh, low cost. You can do them easily. You know, it's going to take. Uh, years, uh, if we can find other rivers or dams to build up, it's going to take years to get that permitted through the process, even if you could get it approved. And we really are in an urgent situation. I mean, we need to be preparing for a continuing drought and future drought. And our groundwater has three times the storage capacity of all our above ground reservoirs combined. I mean, I, I kind of think of the above ground reservoirs as they, they store about a year's worth of California's water, of what we use. They're sort of for the flexible 12-month to 18-month horizon, but it's really our groundwater reservoirs that are going to get us through future droughts and are the most important storage that we have to invest in. Gabrielle Ludwig, we haven't talked too much about prices. There's, um, water prices have been going up in San Francisco because we rebuilt the tunnels to protect them from an earthquake. Uh, do you see water prices increasing in the future, and what's that going to do to farmers? Um, well, again, coming back to water for agriculture is very complex, and there's a lot of, depending on where you are, where the prices are. So it's not a one-size-fit-all. Fundamentally, yes, I think water prices are going to come up, and that ties into the previous conversation that whether you're talking dams or in general, we still need to invest in infrastructure. So for groundwater recharge, you need to invest in, 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 in certain infrastructure just to make that possible. To manage these dams differently, you need to invest. So those are costs that someone's going to have to bear. So just for that reason. Or, or the other thing I would like to see is just currently some of the groundwater pumping is simply because the waste surface water supplies does not match our current high-efficiently irrigation system. So we need to invest in just simply the, the, the water distribution systems for irrigation to meet our current irrigation systems demand. So just to give you examples of 
to me, cement isn't the only answer, but that investment in infrastructure, including potentially dams or at least some components of it, is part of the conversation. The other impact I would like to say if, if water increases is, I mean, one thing California boasts about, I mean, if, is we have somewhere between 350 to 450 different crops that are grown in this state because of the diversity of ecosystems we have, the diversity of climates, and because of having a unique Mediterranean climate for much of the state. So one consequence of increased water costs is we're going to lose some of that diversity. Max Gomberg, if someone wants to do a housing development in California, they have to prove that there's water available to do it. Should the same be true for a, a walnut grove or a tree nut grove or, or for farmers? There's hedge funds that are financing new almond uh, plantations in California. Should they have to prove that there's water just like a housing developer has to prove it? Well, we do. We have a, a law called the Show Me the Water Law for new housing developments over a, a, a certain size. They have to establish that the water supply is there. I think with the implementation of the Groundwater Management Act, um, we will see areas where new wells will not be permitted unless there is sustainable management of, of that basin. Um, I want to talk about another aspect of, of, of pricing, if I may, which is um, pr- the sort of pricing and, and human rights. We passed a law uh, f- four years ago, the Human Right to Water Law in California. We have over 1.5 million people in this state, the eighth largest economy in the world, who don't have access to safe and affordable drinking water. We have a huge challenge there. Um, and part of it is that systems are run with contaminants. Um, there's not enough financing to operate the systems um, uh, effectively. We have to come up with a way to pay for that. So the infrastructure we need is, is not just the infrastructure that Gabrielle is talking about, but we need infrastructure for safe and affordable drinking water for some of our most vulnerable populations. Uh, Gabrielle Ludwig, when you talk to your uh, members about climate, do they resonate with climate or do they say, well, the weather's been changing my whole life. My dad did this. You know, is that a concept that resonates with them and the the fact that things may be fundamentally changing in a way that their ancestors didn't experience? I would say that in general, climate, at least the way it's generally talked about, does not resonate with most of agriculture because you're in a business where you're dependent on the weather. So for them, variability each year is already different. That's part of the nature of their business. So, um, but I would say that certainly the lack of a snowpack last year was a wake-up call. Um, I definitely would see there's more conversations about how do we deal with this change or, you know, a lot of tree crops need a certain amount of chilling hours. If they don't get it, you don't get that much yield. So there's a number of things that are happening where I do think um, there are some questions starting to be raised. So, I, I, so the way I would put it is, if you put it that starkly, like pure climate change, the way you probably hear typically talk about it. The probably, way the people in the Bay Area talk about it, talk about different Yeah, yeah. exactly. And your mission with, your, with this right. show, okay? Right. Um, that probably doesn't resonate. But if you talk about... Uh, you know, increased changes, you know, the extremes and weather, that resonates with them. You know, that's something they can understand. So it really depends on how you talk about the conversation. Buzz Thompson, you have the Water in the West program at Stanford. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how, you know, the broader sweep about how we're entering a new normal and how we've kind of just been lulled into this place of this, this wetness that we've had for the last hundred years or so and how it's hard for the human mind to catch up with the new, the new normal. Yeah. So, I mean, we clearly are moving into a totally new situation where the 
uh, type of weather patterns that we have historically seen are not going to be the norm uh, in the future. And we're going to have to be able to deal with that. We've been talking about various ways in which we can do it, largely, for example, through diversifying all the various methods that we have for obtaining uh, water. I actually think that the public is getting the concept of climate change uh, and largely because of what's happening in the water field. It is an impact of climate change that we are seeing today. Uh, and one of the great things about working in the water field is when you go to water conferences, everyone around you wants to talk about climate change. And that's been true for a decade now. Well, I actually think this is one of the sectors that's actually taking this problem seriously. We're talking about the drought at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are Ashley Boren with Sustainable Conservation, Buzz Thompson from Stanford, Gabrielle Ludwig from the State Almond Board, and Max Gomberg from the State Water Resources Control Board. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Gavin Newsom is elected governor, calls you up, Ashley, Gabrielle, Buzz, Max separately, calls you into his inner sanctum. I want to do it for California water what I did for gay rights. I want to do the right thing. Um, I don't care if somebody's ox gets gored. What do you tell him? Max Gomberg, Governor Newsom in 2018. <laughs> I, I, I've got a laundry list. Uh, <laughs> but, but, I, but I think we really need to start with some serious equity issues that I alluded to earlier. Um, we cannot call ourselves you know, a, a leading state with Silicon Valley on the leading edge of things and have communities across the state where when there's a drought, the well goes dry, there's contaminated water. Um, it's not acceptable. We need to fix that. We need the legislature to step up and pass a funding mechanism um, with, with gubernatorial support that will provide the type of funding that's needed to transform those systems into ones that provide safe and affordable drinking water so that all Californians can have it. Ashley Boren, Governor Newsom on the phone. Let me just add on to that and then I'll put one. But one of that is reforming Prop 218 and Prop 26 so that we can actually figure out how to finance uh, the infrastructure that's needed for water, which is one of the things the legislature and Governor, uh, Gavin Newsom could help get done. Uh, the second, I would say, is really figuring out and investing in data and information. We, there's a lot we just don't know uh, about our, our water use, um, where the sources, the levels of groundwater, how groundwater is flowing, weather, all sorts of things, and trying to figure out how to um, have a more transparent uh, and data and information that we can all be operating off of that same set of information would be enormously helpful and a big move in the right direction. Most people have no idea how much water they use or where it goes. or no, uh, You can have information on your phone these days. You can look into your house or see your electric, electrical usage. You can't do that for water. Buzz Thompson, Governor Newsom on the phone. So it all comes back to prices. Uh, at the price at which we charge people for water, uh, we are basically starving the water sector of uh, any type of innovation. So what I would urge is, is that we have a public goods charge on water. That public goods charge should deal with the equity issue uh, that Max talked about. It should deal with the data issue uh, that Ashley uh, identified. Uh, it also should help to promote uh, new technologies uh, in the water field. I did a study two years ago where we looked at the amount of innovation taking place in the water sector versus the energy sector. And what we found was water has always seen less innovation, 
Uh, but starting in about 2008, the amount of innovation in energy shot through the roof. The amount of innovation in the water sector remained largely flatlined. Uh, there are a whole variety of reasons for that, but one of them is that there is just very little money available in the water sector to drive the type of innovation that's needed. And the water and that, is also very locally regulated. Um, Gabrielle Ludwig... I just add that public sector good, public goods charge is a wonderful idea, and it should also be providing uh, water for the environment so that we yep. get more secure water Absolutely. for the environment. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. A question about the cycle of uh, frequency of drought. I recall that mid-70s to later part of the 70s, we had severe drought. And I was a graduate student at Stanford. Joe Franzini, uh, the great hydrologist actually, was telling me or telling us that we have flood frequency, 10 years flood, 25 years, 50 years, 100 years. Why can't we just develop a frequency for drought so that the decision can be made? Because when you want to, make, when you want to design a dam, you have to have frequency analysis, you know, 100 years flood. If you don't have 100 years flood, you can't actually design your dam. So therefore, if you have frequency drought, then we can decide what to do. I think the problem is that those old models, 100-year floods are now coming every 10 years, Buzz Thompson. And the problem is, uh, that as Greg just mentioned, the frequency of droughts appears to be increasing. Max mentioned earlier that there is a new study that was just released at Stanford two days ago uh, by Professor Noah Diffenbaugh and a number of his colleagues. And what that study looked at was what has been the weather conditions in California over the last 70 years, and to what degree have we seen the type of situation that has led to our current drought, which is a ridiculously resilient ridge of high pressure sitting off of the west coast of the United States, preventing those storms from coming into uh, California. And what they found was that if you look over the last 70 years, that type of a problem has been much more common in the last 35 years than it was with the 35 years prior to that. Also, interesting enough, because you mentioned flood, it doesn't appear as if the frequency of floods has gone down. So what appears to be happening is that we're going to the extremes. We're going to have more droughts, and we're going to have at least as many floods before, and what is disappearing is what we might at one point have considered normal. Last question. Let's go to... Yes, sir. Uh, I've, got a co I've got a comment and a question. Did the agricultural production in the San Joaquin Valley, had, had, did, it, did it suffer because of the drought? Some crops, yes. Some crops, no. Um, generally, yes, there have been um, production losses, Though in terms of econ economies, many times the prices were higher, so the grower got a total return, but often with higher costs. So it's actually a more complicated picture than just simply yes or no. But you had, for example, 25% less acres of rice planted, just flat out not planted, um, a lot less. I'm addressing the overall industry. As I read, I think I read that production was up. No, production was not necessarily up. The value was up, but not necessarily the production. Ashley Bourne? I was just going to add, the value of production was up, 
but a half a million acres, I think, was fallowed, so that was not produced at all. Um, and the reason that they were able to keep that value and continue to produce what they did is that they relied heavily on groundwater, which comes back to why groundwater is such an important resource. It was a way that that economy didn't get disrupted as much as it might have because they were able to draw on the groundwater. But if we keep taking water out and not replenishing it, we're not going to be able to do that in the future. It's, it's really crucial that we use My our groundwater My experience storage. is I was born and raised in Fresno. And one of the reasons I left Fresno was because of the chronically whiny farmers. And if you give farmers more water, they just plant more crops. So somebody has to break down that egocentric mentality. But can and, I make an argument back? Okay. Do you eat? <laughs> All of us are dependent on those farmers. All of us are free to not be farming because we have less than 2% of the population farming. So if you eat, and I don't care what you eat, you're dependent on a farmer. My comment to that is almonds and pistachios are not, and grapes are not requisite in the average diet. The Mediterranean diet is the only diet that has been proven to be healthful. What's in that diet is fresh fruit, vegetables, nuts, olive oil. Things I, we grow here very well. And I have almonds <laughs> in, my, in my drawer. I just want you all to know that. <laughs> right upstairs above this, uh, this stage. Uh, let's go quickly. We've got to wrap this up. Um, uh, two questions. I uh, want each of you. Max Gomberg, uh, water smart food. What should we people eat in California? Well, the less eat meat people eat in general, um, the, the smaller the water footprint. So uh, it doesn't mean that people should stop eating meat, but if you want to lower your water footprint, uh, more vegetables. Ashley Boren? Uh, agreed. Throw dairy in there. Uh, Buzz Thompson? Uh, agreed entirely. And then if we import all of our food from other countries, we're just using up their water <laughs> rather than ours. Now, uh, Gabrielle Ludwig, it's too easy to say eat almonds instead of hamburgers to get your protein. But what do you think uh, Californians should eat and t- to be cl- uh, water smart? Not almond burgers instead of... <laughs> <laughs> almond burgers instead of... Uh, I mean, the data does say that... You know, Meat products are high in water use and dairy products are high in water use. But again, I come back to, if you look at it, a diverse diet, um, a healthful diet, and in moderation. I mean, the bigger issue is we all eat too much. So, uh, Yeah, 800, pounds, 800 gallons of water, something like that, in a hamburger. Last question for each of you. What's the number one personal action that you did to reduce your water consumption uh, during the drought, this time starting with Gabrielle Ludwig? I flushed the toilet a lot less. <laughs> Buzz Thompson? I put in a smart irrigation controller in my house, which has reduced my irrigation consumption by about 80%. You got a lawn at Stanford, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, Ashley Bourne? I live in San Francisco, and my postage stamp yard <laughs> was already on drip, but I reduced uh, the water going through it down, and that saved uh, about... I think about a third of the water my little house was using in San Francisco. We killed the little postage stamp lawn at my house. It's been <laughs> ugly brown dirt for three years. Max Gomberg? We, we stopped watering outdoors altogether, and unfortunately that meant that the weeds survived. <laughs> and uh, that's the big one we should have touched more, perhaps, on outdoor landscaping. We have to wrap it up there. Our thanks to Max Gomberg from the State Water Board, Ashley Boren from Sustainable Conservation, Buzz Thompson from Stanford University, and Gabrielle Ludwig from the State Almond Board. I'm Greg Dalton. Our thanks to our funders for this program. This program was underwritten by the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. I'd like to thank our audience here in the room at the Commonwealth Club and online for joining us. Thank you all for coming.
Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.